This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Ayana Mathis, author of the novel The Unsettled. Everyone in the book is on a on a either a sort of geographic level or in an actual sort of physical place kind of level or on an emotional level or on a historic level. Everyone in the book is looking for some kind of home or re-navigating a sense of home or where home is or what it is. We'll be back with Ayana Mathis after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years... I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, Well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is novelist and nonfiction writer Ayana Mathis. Her first novel, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, was a New York Times bestseller, second selection for Oprah's Book Club 2.0, and NPR Best Book of 2013, along with receiving other honors. Her nonfiction has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and Guernica, among other publications. 
Mathis currently teaches at Hunter College's MFA program. Her new novel is called The Unsettled and tells the story of Ava Carson and her 10-year-old son, Toussaint, who are teetering on the edge of survival and living in a shelter in Philadelphia in 1985. Ava, determined to get her son out of the shelter, reconnects with Toussaint's father, Cass, and they go to live with him in a row house turned commune in another part of the city. Cass is a former Black Panther seeking to destroy systems of racial injustice. Meanwhile, Ava's mother lives in Bonaparte, Alabama, which was once an enclave for black freedom and determination, but is now vulnerable to destruction by white developers. We began the discussion with me asking Ayanna Mathis about the title, The Unsettled. So the title came really very late. Actually, my my friend, who's a genius, um, the the writer Emily Rabiteau titled it because we it had a different title. Um, for a long time, it was called A Violent Woman, which was, it, it's, the, the book went through a lot of evolutions, I should say. I mean, I was working on it for, I don't know, um, eight or nine years, so quite a long time. So in the beginning, it, it, I thought that it was something that it wasn't. And so that other title seemed like a good one for it. Um, and then it became apparent around year four or five or six, one of those years, um, that that wasn't a good title for it anymore. But but it didn't have another one. So it just kind of remained its working title. Um, and then as we got very, very close to the end, I think I had, I think I was finished it. And I think I had turned it into my editor I had. And all of us were sort of scrambling because we were like, we need a new title. We need a new title. And I was kind of panicking. And no one could think of one. And then I was talking to my friend, Emily Rabito, as I said, and she, she's a, she's a genius in general and a titling genius in particular. And she knew some stuff about the book and we were, we were not even talking, actually, we were texting and it was like an eight or 10 minute text exchange in which she titled the book. (laughs) And so, which is, which is pretty astounding. Um, And for which I am eternally grateful, obviously. It's an incredible title because everyone in the book is on a on a either a sort of geographic level or in an actual sort of physical place kind of level or on an emotional level or on a historic level. Everyone in the book is looking for some kind of home or re-navigating a sense of home or where home is or what it is, or they're trying to sort of make something that is like the safety and security of a home, like build something from the ground up. Um, so all of these people, you know, there, there are a lot of fraught family dynamics in this. So people are unsettled also in their familial relationships. You know, the two, two of the three main characters are mother and daughter, and they are their relationship is very, very strained. Um, so on, on almost every level, I think the characters in the book are um are to some extent unsettled. Um and then I think on the larger level, you know, I mean, it's, it's a book about it's a book about a lot of things. I mean, it's a family story. It's also a book about. Well, we'll get into it, no doubt. But um, I think it's it's in as much as it's also a book that thinks about things like a home and safety for Black people in particular. It, it I think that the title is also a reference. I think to sort of blackness in America, right? Which is which is this unsettled thing, despite the fact that 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 black people have been here um, from the beginning of the nation in any case. Uh, and so it's um, it's just a title, I think, that resonates on almost every level. I'm going to do a summary. Okay. As you were saying, it's, it's really three generations. There's Duchess, who's the mother, and she lives in um, what could be a very utopic place in Alabama. It was started as during the Reconstruction era by uh, freed slaves to be their own kind of place where white people weren't yeah. there. It was their own universe, mm-hmm. really. And actually, I would say it's it's probably historically incorrectly, but I almost think it sort of started during slavery, which is an impossibility. And that's part of the sort of mythical elements of the novel. But I think I think they've been there in my mind. They've been there. They've been there since before the Reconstruction. Again, and an actual historical, probably impossibility, but in any case. So sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, that's great. So Duchess lives in this on this land in Bonaparte in Alabama. Her daughter, Ava, left to go to school but didn't finish and ends up in Philadelphia. And she has a son named Toussaint. 
and mm-hmm. they he's about 11 when the book opens and she's just leaving her husband who is abusive to her mm. not all the time but enough enough of the time right and she enough leaves she ends up in um in a sh- in a women's shelter and she has a head injury and everything's kind of foggy and she just really can't muster what it need what she needs to take care of her son so he's kind of on his mm-hmm. own skipping school mm-hmm. and she's kind of wading through this murky waters of living in this shelter and being unemployed and wondering about her life kind of cut off from her mother and then she reconnects with this man named Cass who was a physician and a black panther who is the father of her son and he creates mm-hmm. kind of his own community called the Ark which is kind of a reference to getting away from the chaos of of the world mm-hmm. in Philadelphia and it becomes mm-hmm. almost like this cult-like community in this home in Philadelphia where he has some radical ideas and that the people living there, he wants to serve the people. He has a medical clinic, but he doesn't Mm -hmm. quite have his medical license anymore. And in, in the house, there is strife because there's a lot of rules that seem in many ways to either subjugate the woman or subjugate the people there um, to his personality. So there's not Mm -hmm. like a ton of agency going on for Ava. She makes a lot of bad choices. Mm -hmm. She might not be the best mother. She's cut off from Duchess. I think, I think she does have agency. This is very interesting because I think that she does. I mean, I think that she, I think, I think that she doesn't use her agency often in the wisest, often does not use it in the wisest way, but I think she has it. I think she has it. So it's interesting to sort of see how people read her and, and how to take her. Forgive me for interrupting. This is like the best summary of this book that I have heard thus far. So I'm really, I'm, I'm sort of amazed and grateful. Um, but yeah, so sorry. I'm, no, you're, not you're right. She does have agency. She just has, makes choices that most of us um, in the sober light of day probably wouldn't make. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I found that, that Toussaint um, actually, out of all those characters, I think he's the most open to finding his true place in the world. I mean, he's young, he's, Mm -hmm. he's searching more. Like I think in some ways, Ava thinks she's found it. Duchess has found it. Cass has found it, but Toussaint Mm -hmm. is more unmoored. And because of that, I think he's more permeable and open to finding out like Mm -hmm. what really resonates with him. So that's kind of Mm -hmm. the backdrop. And that was an excellent summary. I got us. It was a, that was a really great summary. (laughs) As I was going over my notes, I found this passage on page 25 that in Mm. some ways I felt if you could read it is almost like the embryo of this book to me. Ava couldn't ever tell Bonaparte the right way. It was like this, she would say, but that wasn't really how it was. It was just her memory playing tricks and making pretty stories. What she should say was, when I was a girl, I watched my pop sprint across Bonaparte's fields of sprouting peanuts, head down, arms pumping. The bullet burst came from behind. Pop fell chest down into the green shoots. The crickets stopped singing. No tricks there, see? Could be if Ava could tell it straight, she'd see the whole long line of her life clear as newsprint. Maybe room 813 had been waiting for her since she was born, since before she was born. Could be that now is already curled up inside then, like a family's generations already inside a woman's body. What a terror. And what a sweetness, too, like some hand had laid it all out for you, lovingly like you might lay out a child's clothes. What? Toussaint said, nothing. Sorry, we should go to sleep. I love that section. And I I wanted to know if it holds particular energy for you. Um, Mm. It seemed different. Like when I got to that, it seemed like it was holding so much. And it's definitely a lot Mm -hmm. about the idea of destiny and maybe Mm -hmm. some legacy, there's mm-hmm. not as much room there for like you creating your own, mm-hmm. which I think there is a lot of that also in this book, but just, yeah, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about that. I think it's both of those things. I mean, I think some of the tension in the novel is about the extent to which things are predetermined 
or faded and the extent to which you can make something yourself. And I think that there's a lot of tension. I think both of the sort of central communities in this book, one Bonaparte that I mentioned just in that passage and that you did, of course, in your amazing summary, um, and, and another group, the Ark in Philadelphia, they're both sort of these attempts to make a, a free, autonomous, beautiful place, despite the fact that the odds are stacked against you that you would able be able to do such a thing. And then I think that both of those communities are also grappling with um, with the notion that it is almost as though it is predetermined that they might fail, but that their own human agency makes them try anyway. So there's there's a lot of that there. And then I think the other thing that I was I was really interested in in this book is, you know, <laughs> there's all all of the narrators here are, are utterly unreliable, right? Like like they all have their own agenda. They all have their own very particular viewpoint on the events of their lives and on each other. They all love each other very deeply, but people who love each other are the worst narrators about each other, right? You know, like they're, they're inevitably like, you know what I mean? Everything is skewed and, and subjective in the whole business. And then of course the other narrator is a child. So I was sort of, I really wanted to, to think about this idea of how you tell a story when there is no record of record you know, like when it is, I mean, and there never is, right? Like every book is sort of playing around with that idea, but sometimes there might be a narrator or sometimes there might be something that is at least ostensibly the truth, right? Or the real story. Um, and in this book, I think a real story emerges, but it isn't because there is necessarily an accurate record of a lot of things. Um, and so I was really interested, and I think that passage alludes to it very much in in sort of like how to tell a story when there isn't a record, when there isn't a proper documentation, let's say, when there isn't some way or someone who can say, I've taken charge of this and this is the correct version of events. Um, and that that really doesn't happen in a certain way in the book. And so I I was I was interested in thinking about how to tell a story in the absence of that. Yeah. And I think something else that it brings to mind for me where she's saying in the very beginning, Ava, Ava couldn't ever tell Bonaparte the right way is like mm -hmm. how fraught and deep the paradoxes are that like mm -hmm. the fact that Bonaparte exists, it's such a special place. And the fact that they had to make a special place comes out of sheer horror and terror mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. racism. And, and so when you do try to tell that story or just the story you're telling itself, it's so like underneath the surface simmering at times when you name it and times when you don't like is the history mm -hmm. of this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. I mean, it's, there's a lot, um, there's a lot in the book, not a lot, but well, actually a fair amount. And I'll, I have to tread carefully here because I don't want to do a spoilers thing, but there's a lot of stuff about, about, um, documentation in the form of like land records and deeds and things like that. Um, and what happens to them and how contested they are and how they may seem like a very permanent thing that would grant you certain privileges or access or what have you, but that it is very easy to sort of undermine the, um, the role that things like property documentation usually has in a country like the United States and particularly, you know, where ownership is everything right. Um, in, in our, in our kind of economic and cultural ethos, right? But there's a lot about, about the ways in which, you know, sort of having the piece of paper that shows you have ownership to the thing, which I think in the cultural imagination is also about security, right? Like I have a deed to my house that I live in and that's security. And so in many ways, many of the people in the book are trying to get a deed or had one, or it is threatened, or that the the sense of security that a deed, like a you know, a documentation of ownership might confer is rendered meaningless, is constantly under threat. So there's um and and of course that is a that is a very, I think there's a very black story. I think it's also very much a story about poor people in general. Um, but you're right, it is also, I think, a very American story, this kind of confrontation with like 
what ownership means and what all these pieces of paper that we that are supposedly supposed to give us safety do they you know what do they mean how easily is it how easy is it to contest a thing like that and part of it also reminds me you know in this paragraph you mentioned her father was shot and her father was shot by white people that in mm. some ways minus i mean not to discount the legacy of slavery that got them to this garden of Bonaparte. But if you don't think about that, there's part of the story to me that felt like that it was the garden of Eden until he died Mm. that, Mm -hmm. you know, Ava said she used to kind of feel spirits all around her. And there is an element Mm -hmm. of, of when Duchess is telling the story that there are old spirits of native Americans and people who lived there. And as soon as he was shot, Mm -hmm. it was like the downfall uh, of, of man like in the Garden mm-hmm. of Eden, where things started, mm-hmm. that's where when things started to really change. And when she left, she didn't mm-hmm. feel that magic. Yeah, I think that's very true. And um, it's a, it's a, um, you're just filled with astute readings. Uh, that is actually very much part of what I was thinking about. I mean, to the point that that Bonaparte even has a kind of origin myth, like very early in the novel. It's it's fairly brief, but there's a there's a there's an origin myth there because it felt like a place that was both um it's a real extant place. I mean, not in the world, but in the novel, right? Like it is a geographic place where people live, but it's also kind of a a spiritual homeland and it's also kind of a mythology, you know? And so I I was, as I kind of went through and thought about it more and more, I thought, you know what, it, it needs a, like a mythological place or a place that is a new place, it needs a myth. Like, how did it come into being? And so there's this little tiny cosmology at a certain point um, early on in the book. So you said that this took you a long time to write, and I've heard in other interviews you say that it was really vexing for you. And that's so, mm-hmm. I think that's, part of what makes Bonaparte so intriguing and is the, is the myth and Mm. like where in your process did you realize you needed that? Relatively early on also because that myth was incredibly fun to write. And it's in a book that is like giving you so much trouble all the time. (laughs) And it's, and is and is, you know, sort of recalcitrant and reluctant to come into being when there's something that's fun to write, you just grab onto it. Um, So I think, I think once I realized that there was a Bonaparte, which I'm not sure at what point, I think fairly early on, again, it's so hard when you've been, when you sort of started a book many times, which I did with this one. And when it takes so long, it becomes difficult to pinpoint exactly when things come into being. But Bonaparte did, I think, fairly early on. And I think it came into being through Duchess's voice, actually, because she came sort of very distinctly and very early. Um, and then sort of the place, in a certain sense, kind of grew up around her. But I think pretty early on as it began to grow, I and, and it began to sort of take on, it doesn't have supernatural elements, but but all of its elements are not strictly purely realist, let's say. Um, and as soon as I began to realize that it was going to have elements like that, then it was like, oh, we 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 need a myth. And the myth came, you know, fairly, fairly easily, actually, which is which is a great gift and a relief in a in a book that was otherwise so often difficult. And tell me about setting that in, you know, 1985 to 88. So I think, you know, I have the 80s on a on the simplest level. I am from Philadelphia and I grew up in Philadelphia, you know, sort of in the, through the eighties, I was in my like tweens and teens. Um, and the eighties was such a fraught period, you know? I mean, I think it's, it's interesting to me that we don't think about the eighties in the sense that I do think that in our, in the sort of more modern times, more modern history, they kind of set the stage culturally and politically for where we are now. And I think we don't tend to think about them in that way, which is interesting to me. I don't know if it's because they're too recent or if it's just because we have a way of thinking about that decade in um, in these kind of narrative snapshots. You know, it's like it, there's these stories about the 80s, right? It's like, oh, it's cocaine and it's Studio 54 and it's Wall Street and it's Bonfire of the Van- Vanities, you know, these sorts of things. Um, when in reality, I think the sort of, 
the, the the whole social fabric of the United States, I think, shifted. Like you coming out of the 60s and 70s, when you had all these freedom movements of various sorts, and you know, the Black Liberation Movement, and the women's movement, and the gay rights movement, etc. And it isn't as though everything was better by, by any means. But I do think there was a little window of hope that kind of opened that things might be able to sort of be a little bit different. And then 1980 comes along, Reagan gets elected, and the window just snaps shut, like it just slams closed. And so not only does it change politically and socially, but the zeitgeist changes too, right? Like everything about the country kind of changes in the 80s. And so, and then of course, there are all these crises that happen in the, you know, the, the AIDS crisis happens, the crack epidemic happens, you know, mass incarceration rat, ratchets up. I mean, all these things happen in the 80s. And so I was, I was, I'm interested in them in a decade in part because I have a lot of memories of that period, right? Because I was a very young sort of forming person in that decade. But also I was, I wanted to see, like, I wanted to think about, given the fact that it's this moment of big social change, I think very much for the worse, worse, I... So what does that look like in a body and a mind? What does it do to people's circumstances? What does it look like for someone who's trying to raise some kids or a kid in this case in that period? Although there's another woman who's got two kids in, in the book. And so, but you know, what does that look like? What, how do the pressures mount against these people? And if they are people who are kind of saying, well, I don't want to, I want to find some other way of living, then what do the pressures become on that, right? Like we mentioned the arc. And um, Ava and her son, Toussaint, become involved in the arc, which is a kind of utopically minded, albeit incredibly flawed, <laughs> um, community. And so, you know, that arises in the 80s. And, and so then I also was thinking about what are the what are the pressures if you want to try to do something like that? If you want to try to live differently or be more free or at least not be so... Um, subject to threats to your sort of life and safety, what does that look like in this decade in particular? And I'm a fiction writer. So of course I'm going to, you know, I could write an essay about it, I guess, but you know, it's fiction. And so I really wanted to, I needed to locate all of that stuff in a heart and a mind and a body and, 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 and think about how those folks would be and what they would be in that context and setting. As kind of an aside, I spend a lot of time, probably like too much time envisioning like what would be the most perfect year to stop time at? Like what would be the year? Oh, wow. And I wonder if you have a year where you think, I mean, nothing's going to be perfect, but things were better. Hmm. What year would it be? I think it would maybe be sometime in the mid seventies, maybe. Um, because I think that was the period at sort of the height of the hopes for all of this work that had been done in the decade or 15 years or so, or actually more if you consider the beginnings of the civil rights movement. Like it was sort of the height of the sort of hope of that. I mean, although bad things were happening, like Martin Luther King has been assassinated by then. Um, so none of it's going to be perfect by any means, but but it does feel like in that sort of early to mid seventies that that was sort of the height of the like, well, maybe, you know, I mean, it was super fraught, right? Super fraught and fractious and all sorts of things are going on, but yeah, maybe it feels like there's hope. And it also feels like people are super aware, which is one of the things that scares me about now is that, is that the, the sort of many, many, many forces collude to kind of make us much more numb, I think, in a way. And part of it is just because we're so bludgeoned by, by the events that are happening around us all of the time. And it seems to me that in, I mean, and I was in the early 70s, I wasn't even born yet. But in through research and looking back and talking to people, that does seem to be a period in which people were very plugged in. So at the very least, they were super aware of what was happening around them on, on either side of various debates, but awareness and engagement always yields to me or equals some kind of promise or some sort of hope in a way that numbness feels that it, it kind of shuts hope down in a certain sense. Yeah, that's, I'm somewhere in the seventies. I, I lean mm. towards 79, but I, I need to do mm. more research. The music was good. <laughs> 
We didn't right, have, right. you know, we didn't have big hair yet. There was that hope. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Absolutely. Um, We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You were saying before that the, you know, you were talking about all these big ideas and you said, I'm a fiction writer. I have to put it into a person. And I always think mm-hmm. that that must be one of the hardest things of, of telling a story is like you have all mm-hmm. these big minded philosophical ideas and social ideas that you want to interrogate, but it has to be in a story that people aren't going to feel like they're preached to or told mm-hmm. things. So how do you think about that when you approach your fiction? I think, you know, it's, it's funny. So you write a book and then the book comes into the world and then you, you, in a certain way, you knew a little bit what it was about, but then also you, you don't really know what it was about until you finished writing it. Right. And then you learn more about what it's about by talking to people like you and talking to readers and, you know, um, that said to say that I think these, the sort of big ideas, like the thematics and all this sort of like big message stuff always sort of necessarily you know, I know some of it while I'm writing and then some of it is really kind of in the background because what I have to really, really think about, like my priority can't be the big message stuff. My priority has to be these people on the page and what they do and, and why they do it. And so I think obviously the big message stuff is informing that, but as the thing is being created in some ways, I think that my concerns are primarily um, character and story. Like that is primarily the thing. But because this other stuff is sort of, you know, it's like a program open in the background, right? So sometimes it it certainly does inform how people move around the world of the fiction, but it it can't be the central thing. Otherwise I will have written, you know, a pamphlet or an essay or worse, kind of written a thing that that masquerades as fiction, but is actually these flat characters moving around to make a point. Um, and I never want to do that. So, um, so I concentrate my efforts on in character, I think, and in and in story. And then you know, and, and revision is always a help, right? Like you you get a draft and you're sort of looking at it and you're thinking, oh this is what this thing seems to be leading towards or gesturing towards or whatever it is. And so you might add things or take things away or emphasize or de-emphasize. So revision, I think, is also a big place where some of those thematics become more sharply defined without um, sacrificing or compromising the integrity of the characters as facsimiles of human beings, not just sort of message carriers. So let's talk about Ava, she was Mm. one of your protagonists and, Mm -hmm. you know, she is this mother that we were talking about. She does have agency. I don't think she chooses a life where there's a lot of freedom for her. She, she basically from the shelter moves into the ark and Mm -hmm. there are rules from Cass who is saying basically, um, we have to grow our own food and we can't really buy food. So they're hungry a lot. They have to shave their heads. They ha- have limited contact with the outside neighborhood. They have certain hours where people come over. And she's also mothering this, this son who she does really love. But because I think of the lack of freedom she has, she's very limited in how she can offer the world up to yeah. him. She was really hard. She was probably the hardest character. Not probably. She was the hardest character in the book. Um, her voice sort of eluded me for a very long time. Like I couldn't, I couldn't hear her. Um, I was probably judging her because she's, you know, like um, an editor of mine described her once as um, um, hard to love yet impossible to hate, which I think is a is a pretty good description of her. Um, and I think I was probably judging her in some ways. Um, and, and then, I, and I think I also was sort of trying to figure out, 
aside from my own judgments, which I think just made her angry with me. So then she didn't want to talk to me. Um, like we really, we were really just in this contentious relationship for years. And um, so she didn't want to talk to me, but I think, you know, in addition to my judgment, you know, there was the difficulty of creating this character who is, is not, you know, I'm never interested in likability. I don't, I don't care about likability at all, but, but I do care about, and I think it's necessary. There has to be some way in which a reader can engage with this person, right? And which means that I have to be able to engage with her, right? First and foremost, to get anyone else to engage with her. And because she is, you know, a, a woman in contentious relationship with motherhood, a woman who makes, she's kind of a self-saboteur, right? She makes messy choices, She's looking for the grandeur and wonder of her childhood in Bonaparte, even though she kind of can't get it back, um, even though, and then when she thinks she finds it, it is certainly in a very fraught and um, what, what becomes dangerous form in, in, in terms of, of the arc and cast. And but she pursues it because it is sort of the culmination of something that she's been looking for. And she pursues it to the detriment of her kid, you know. So she's she's not easy. And so it was really hard to figure out how to make her again, not likable, but full enough, right? Human enough and wide enough that we would be able to attach to her, even if we don't necessarily like her that much, or if we're judging her or whatever it is. So she was um she was really hard. She was really hard. She really falls for this guy Cass. I mean, he is the father of her son and he leaves her life for a long time and then reappears. And he has some really shady stuff that he does. And yes. <laughs> he is a former Black Panther and he's running this clinic. And I, I, I believe he's coming from a good place and trying to have something to serve the community. But there's like a militant uh, component to him. And mm. he he does keep the people in his house kind of caged. And mm -hmm. I'm really curious about how you formed him, what maybe mm -hmm. historical influences helped you create him and, and mm -hmm. why he was so important to you. Mm. So he, he, um, oddly enough, he's sort of easier than, than Ava, who is the hardest, hardest one. You know, the, the, the thing that I wanted, um, and I hope is the case about Cass is that from a kind of political and liberation perspective, to use a word like that, he's right about a lot of things. He's right about most things, in fact. Um, you know, one of my favorite parts of the book, it's probably nowhere else's, but I love it, is that he he tacks a manifesto to the door at a certain point, you know, and it's this kind of 10-point manifesto about what ARC stands for and what it is. And um and he's right really about almost everything. But, and he's, he's a doctor, as you said, he's an ex-Black Panther. But his motives, I think, are questionable. And his methods are just downright not so great, right? And so, um, and so, and I, I was, I was interested in that kind of contradiction. You know, I think it's a, I think it's a book full of like slightly paradoxical things, certainly in terms of characters, right? Like, um, that, that in certain ways are not, are not resolved very intentionally. So, you know, he, he's politically right about all this stuff, but as a person, he's really not so great. And he's, He's he's massively charismatic and appealing and all these sorts of things, but he's pretty abusive, really, you know, um, super controlling. And, you know, I, I think that one of the things that I that I wanted to think about are and this is definitely the case with Ava as well. I wanted to think about. I wanted to think about things like virtue and and our sort of demand that people be particularly people who are who are not at the sort of center of our society right so particularly people who are poor particularly people who are not white um the sort of demand 
for virtue in order to acknowledge their humanity, right? Like, like, well, we're not going to help you, poor person, unless we think that you are just going to spend all of your time at the library trying to get your kid to Harvard, right? You know, like, it's like there are these, there, there's very particular stipulations for granting certain members of our society their humanity, and they often have to do with being super virtuous, super noble, super, super everything, super people, right? Um, so I was really interested in poking around at that. And and thinking about the ways in which one like these people, all of them are flawed and contradictory. And yet or not and yet just and they are still fully human and still fully deserving of their humanity. So I was I wanted to sort of have all of these flawed folk that we still kind of have to reckon with in the fullness of their humanity for better and for worse. Um, and then sort of last thing about Cass, I guess he is, um, a bit of an amalgam of a lot of things, you know, I, I imagine we may or may not talk about move at certain point. Um, he's a little bit of, of, of that. Um, he, he was a Panther. So there's sort of the spirit of the black Panthers and then other things too, you know, I, I think places, you know, groups like the weather underground, you know, I, I began kind of being really interested in all those sorts of things. And he, he becomes an amalgam, but he's also kind of culty. So he, so he is, so he also sort of has those elements, you know, the sort of like charismatic controlling leader figure, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned move and I, I hadn't known much about it. I did a little bit of research, but that was in Philadelphia, I believe in the eighties. And it was, it was a movement of, and it was people in a house and they were kind of radical and there was a bomb that might've influenced some of this. I don't know. It did. I mean, it, it move, move remains a raw wound in Philadelphia. Um, the, the bombing happened on, um, mother's day, 1985 and move was, you know, um, they, been around since the late 60s they still exist they're not very active but they still exist um and they were like a radical black separatist group in many ways ahead of their time you know they were vegetarians they composted um they did you know all these sorts of things and um but they were also difficult in many ways um they were difficult neighbors you know <laughs> they weren't easy neighbors they were um they were sort of strident and pushy about their message and their messaging. So they weren't easy to live around. Um, and in any case, so they, they ended up in, in a series of, um, and, and I should say they were sort of, they were definitely a black liberation group and they ended up in a series through sort of the late sixties in through the seventies and into the eighties in a series of, of skirmishes with the police and standoffs with the police, the biggest of which was in 1985 on Mother's Day, as I said. And uh, they ended up in a, a about a 14-hour armed, 12 to 14-hour armed standoff with the police. They, they were armed. They had a lot of guns. And in which the police fired something like 10,000 rounds of ammunition into this row house that they were living in, in a neighborhood in Philadelphia called uh, Cobbs Creek. And so at the sort of, toward the end of this siege on the house, which is a row house, which is very important. So it's attached to all these other houses on the block. Um, the, the police and the mayor at the time decide that the way to, to end this, this standoff is to drop a C4 explosive from a helicopter onto the roof of the house. And so of course the house you know goes up in flames. There were 13 people in the house Two people got out alive, a woman uh, named Ramona Africa and a little boy named Birdie Africa. Everyone in MOVE took the last name Africa. So these were the only two survivors. The other 11 people who were in the house, five of whom were children, died. Um, and then the block just kind of went up in flames. So the, like all these, I mean, it's just a, a catastrophe in the neighborhood. All these people are displaced. Because, you know, if you drop a bomb on a row house, the other house is, <laughs> strangely enough, the other house is also burn, you know. Um, and so it, this book is is not telling move by any means, because I, I sort of decided that I didn't, I wouldn't presume to try to tell that story. But it, but it, it is such a, 
You remember it very well. It was about 11. And I remember it. I remember watching it on the news. I remember what it looked like. And so I, I think I had a lot of questions about it at that time that stayed with me, for which I found didn't find any answers probably until I got into adulthood um, and, and, and started reading more kind of politically and more about kind of the racial realities of the country and political realities of the country. And then I began to kind of understand maybe what had happened there a little bit. I still don't really, but in any case, so that did sort of that, that catastrophe and that act of outsized violence, police violence, loomed very large in my mind and, and, and in my imagination. I mean, and I think the other reason that it, that the book is not about movies is because in a certain way I had to step back from it. I didn't want to tell the story and I don't even think I have answers, you know, but I wanted to ask a lot of questions about it and I needed to be able to sort of like invent, invent a place and an entity that was in conversation with move, but that existed entirely sort of on my own terms and in my own imaginative life, if that makes any sense. Um, but yes, it certainly did. It certainly is a thing that, that I and the book are thinking about. Yeah. And you, you just said a few times, like you don't necessarily have the answers. And I think that's something that's very important to this book in general and to us as humans. It's like as humans, we want to have the answers, but our job is to really live without them. Our job is to yeah. to try to, um, especially in, you know, maybe in adulthood to like understand the ambiguity and the paradox that we have to leave in that like that things don't make sense that we can look at the news. We can look at the history of, mm-hmm. of black people in this country and, and we can't find an answer that's going to like solve everything. And mm-hmm. my, my favorite, absolute favorite part of the book, I think has to do with this, which was when Toussaint who was like searching for answers was at school. And it's like, mm. it, it was a, it's a big symbolism for what was going on in his life. But he, they were mm. talking about gravity and he just couldn't mm. really buy it. He's like, well, what if gravity stops? Like, what if the sun explodes and the earth flies away? Like you're telling me there's these rules, but like, what if it stops one day? And then he says all at once, Toussaint realized nobody had any answers to give him. The grownups didn't know anything or whoever they did know or whatever they did know, they weren't going to tell him. And so I felt like that was a very important moment in the book and, and also like a big lesson for your readers and just wanted to, you probably remember writing that. I don't know. I do. I do. Actually. I remember that. I remember that writing that section actually very well, like the whole kind of flip out in the classroom. And it is sort of the incident and that realization that sort of sets him wandering, as you mentioned in your summary, he, he, he starts to, you know, not go to school and he's kind of truant and, wanders around the city and and hangs out with some homeless folks on some railroad tracks who become his friends and that but that sort of realization like well wait I don't think any of these people know anything that sort of sets him on this trajectory because he begins to just kind of doubt most of what he's been told um and and I think yes very deeply in keeping with the book, even this this notion of that we were talking about earlier of there not being a record of records, right? Like, what is the record? What is the real story here? And it's kind of like, well, the real story is a, is a whole lot of different stories. And so I think that that passage that you just read or that sentence, those couple of sentences that you just read, I, I think very much speak to that. And this kid in, in many ways is sort of more plugged into the world's realities than any of the adults that are around him, you know? yeah. And I think part of the book too is just like, how do you get square with the world? Like, how do you, like what you were saying with Cass's rules for the, his, his edict for the house, like his 10 things that he believed in, they were, they made sense, but they don't necessarily Mm -hmm. square with the world around you or that, you know, Mm -hmm. Duchess owns this land in Bonaparte and there's white people coming to inflict on that. And how do you square Mm -hmm. with her history? And it's like, uh, how do our ideas of justice and truth and love fit with a world that doesn't flow that to you? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's so much of what you were sort of, or very wisely saying earlier, you know, we don't, 
we we do have to sort of learn to live with the unreconcilable, right? Like 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 there are many many things writ large and writ small, right? Like in an individual life, you know, like my mother is very ill now and she's she's dying. And 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 it, that people die doesn't make any sense, right? Do you know what I mean? Like it does. We know that people die, but but when you're sort of actually confronted with the reality that this person will not exist, it doesn't, you know what I mean? That these doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And then and so there are all of these things that are both tragic and unreconcilable and un not not available to us to be able to understand that we live with all the time. You know, it, it, it's one of the things that I find really frustrating and also fascinating about our kind of political situation at the moment. You know, it's like all of us, every single human being has to reckon with the fact that we ourselves and somebody we, we know will die. And that already is unfathomable, unreconcilable with our notion of like, of what a self is. And yet somehow we can't seem to export that way of living with paradox and strangeness. We can't seem to export it out into other things, right? In other things, we want it to be one way or the other way. And um, which is very interesting and and frustrating and and, and maybe ultimately just sort of very human. But um, you know, I think about these ideas a lot. You know, I'm writing a, a series for the New York Times now about about sort of the imprinting of, of religious thought, um, particularly on contemporary literature, not exclusively, but, you know, largely. And, you know, one of the, one of the questions that, that I think about a lot is like, is how human beings are in fact very capable of living with paradox. Like we really can walk and chew gum at the same time, but so much of what we, our political landscape, the, the ways in which we're encouraged to think about ourselves as consumers and not humans, you know, all of these sorts of things, they sort of flatten us and fool us maybe a little bit into thinking that we cannot, in fact, hold two contradictory ideas inside ourselves at the same time or inside our minds at the same time, when in fact we do all the time. Um, that was kind of a weird aside, but it, but it's, you know, it's, it's a thing that I think about can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? This is from, in any case, I can sort of set it up. Um, this is from Louise Erdrich's The Plague of Doves. It's very, it's extraordinarily beautiful and it's also extraordinarily difficult. There's a central mystery in this book and, and it has this kind of similar thing. It, me it meant a lot to me also because it is a, it is a book about many things. But one of the things that it is about is a central incident, um, which is a lynching of four native men that happens sort of before the book starts in a way. And it's and it's a story that is being told to a young girl by her grandfather, who is an elder in the their Ojibwe in their community. And this 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 why the lynching happened. So four native men were lynched by a, a mob of, of white men and why the lynching happened and sort of who was responsible for it. It was a kind of a de facto central mystery, but really it's about community and history and all these sorts of things. Um, and so one of the things that resonated with me about it is that it doesn't, it has this same central problem, which is what do you do when there is something that has sort of shaped everything about which there is no definitive, correct, reliable record. So it's got that going on. And this is um, this section that I'm going to read is from um, one of the young men who was lynched. Um, this is sort of his last kind of memory. We're in his consciousness. It's just a brief paragraph. The young men have been kind of hung from this tree and they're, they're losing consciousness at this point. And they're singing a song. They're singing some, some songs that are culturally important to them. They sang the song twice before the Buckendorfs shook themselves and prepared the wagon. Emile steadied the two horses and counted down to whip them at the same time. The boy tried to open his mouth to join in his uncle's song, but could only hum to himself the tuneless lullaby that his mother had always used to sing him to sleep. The Buckendorfs threw their arms back, cut the horses at the same time, then again harder. The wagon lurched, stopped, then bucked forward. The men stumbled, 
but did not stop singing. Finally, the horses bolted away. They halted after 20 feet. The men tried to keep them tried to keep singing even as they strangled. The boy was too light for death to give him an easy time of it. He slowly choked as he kicked the air and spun. He heard it when Cuthbert, then his uncle, stopped singing and stopped gurgling. Behind his shut eyes, he was seized by black fear until he heard his mother say, open your eyes. And he stared into the dusty blue. Then it was better. The little wisps of clouds way up high had resolved into wings and they swept across the sky now faster and faster. Do you want to say anything more about why you chose that? Uh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> One of the, you know, just from uh, almost, that's not the whole reason, but from, from an aesthetic point of view, it, it is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and it manages, again, from, I guess, sort of a craft writerly perspective, it manages to inhabit the consciousness of a person going through the ultimate horror, which is their death, and a death in the most unjust way you can imagine, without somehow without sensationalizing it. It's like it it just it brings the whole thing down. I mean, the language is soaring and gorgeous, but it's not loud and it's not sensational and it's not gory. And somehow it there's something like it feels itself a little bit like a song, you know, like the, the rhythm of it, the rhythm of the language, the beauty of the language. Um, and that is a really tough thing to do. Seems just from a writer's perspective. I'm, I'm never quite sure how she did that. Um, and then also, I think it does a thing that I think is just really marvelous, which is that, you know, when someone has been victimized by these enormous and unfathomable and sort of inarticulable social injustices, and that term isn't even the right one, we tend to sort of tell about them with pity um, or with some sort of some sort of sense of them as victims that belies their humanity. And this young man in his final moments is so very human and so very real. And there is no pity here. There's just beauty. And, and of course, this deep sadness of what's happening. And that also is really tough to do. And the heart of the writer who could do that is really pretty. It's pretty astounding. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really liked? Sure. I'll read from The Unsettled. There's a section in which, um, part two of the novel, in which Ava and her son have joined Ark and they've, they've begun living with them. And um, it was really difficult, you know, in that, in when, when they go to live with, with, with the folks at the Ark, I've struggled mightily with, with sort of trying to figure out that transition because the last time we sort of see them is when they're still in the, in the homeless shelter some other thing happens. I won't give it away because spoilers. And then they go to ARC. And I struggle a lot. I was like, well, do I have to tell the whole story of the interim and the time between when they leave the shelter and when they get to ARC? Do I need to detail it? Also, is Ava, I know she's not exactly a victim, but yet maybe she sort of, it was just a big struggle about how to transition them from one very particular setting that is a, a homeless shelter to another very particular setting, which is a kind of utopically minded, culty, political separatist thing, right? It's like, how do I get them from one 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 place to the next? I had no idea. There were many, 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 many drafts of trying to figure out how the heck to do that. And then I realized at a certain point, I was like, you know what? Just begin. Just begin with them there and just begin with her in a place where, yes, I know that it is going to become a very difficult place, but she herself, for a period, has made a choice to be there, and it feels to her like the right choice. It feels almost sacred to her. And so after many drafts, I figured out that that was where to begin. 
And so I'm just going to read very briefly about her sort of first moments when we first see her in ARC and she is um, voluntarily, um, Cass is shaving her head and she she's asked to get her to get her head shaved. The, the chapter is called Communion. First, the click and snip of the shears. Ava sat in a kitchen chair surrounded by Cass and her son and her newly found brothers and sisters, Zeke, Winnie, and her sons, Alvin and Nemo, all in the small backyard of Winnie's house at 248 Ephraim Avenue. Their fellowship was called Ark, with a K, because they were a refuge from the devastation and deluge of the city. Ava and Toussaint had been in this new life for four months. Springy brown puffs of hair floated down onto Ava's shoulders, over her ears, past her eyes. The fluff caught on her eyelashes, tickled her neck, and landed softly at her feet. You okay? Cass asked. He cut slowly, sweetly. She was okay. This was her choice. She had anticipated some other feeling, panic maybe, or mourning. Instead, little thrills, trills along her spine, tiny ringing bells. Winnie hummed, a no-word wandering tune that kept pace with the clicking shears. It had rained earlier. Earthworms rooted in the freshly turned soil in the yard. A dogwood in the alley bloomed white and pink. Brilliant green moss grew on the underside of the concrete slabs they'd broken up to make room for Ava's kitchen garden. She could already feel the seeds unfurling in the dirt under her feet. Alive, alive. The clippers buzzed at her temples, so gentle, so painstaking. Ava could anticipate Cass's movements by the twitch in the fingers of his free hand. Coolness expanded across her scalp in precise vertical stripes. Done, he said after some time. Ava did not move or open her eyes. The sun came out from behind a cloud and warmed her. She ran her hand over the new velvet of her scalp. Joyous. Up she floated like a cloud, like a kite, over the rooftops and the streetlights and the tree line. Not free. She didn't want that anyway. Jubilant. Is there anything else you want to say about that? No, um, except it is one of the rare instances, I think, in any book. Um, and in this one, but in any book, I guess, in the life of any writer, where you sort of have a paragraph or two where you feel like you said exactly what you meant. And, and that I feel like that about that. Where do you write? It varies. I'm I'm a person who I tend to move around. You know, my my partner jokes that she can sort of, if she weren't home all day, she could find a trail. So it's like coffee cups, pa- papers, pens, weird tissues. Like it's like I tend to all go from couch to dining room table to another chair. I mean, I have an office, but I only I tend to only spend <laughs> a little bit of time, and the rest of the time I just sort of wander around from place to place. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? To get away from writing, um, I there's not necessarily a place, I suppose, because it always t- tends to follow me around, I guess. Um, but um, there's where, there are places I go sort of in my mind. Um, reading, actually, enormously. Like when I'm really absorbed in a book that I love, I am not thinking about writing at all. I'm thinking purely about that place that that book has transported me to. Um friends are important, just kind of like hanging around with friends. I see a lot of art. So like I go to museums a lot and galleries and things like that. Um, and music, really, really massively music. It's like all these sorts of infusions of, of art, I guess, and beauty tend to kind of remove me from, um, from feeling like I should be writing or was writing or just to kind of turn it off a little bit in my brain and my friends enormously, just kind of like hanging out and cooking and some glasses of wine and talking smack, you know, like I, we talk about writing sometimes, but a lot of times we just talk about Cardi B, you know what I mean? Then that, that is also an enormous reprieve. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, it's interesting with this book, very few people, I guess my wife is one of the early ones. 
But with this book, even her, not for a long time, um, which is a thing I think I need to remedy. You know, my first book I wrote while I was a grad student. So I was getting a lot of feedback all the time. Um, and this book was much more isolating and I was only showing big chunks of things to people when they felt done-ish. And then of course I was rewriting all these done things, but, um, yeah, it, that's a, that's a longer answer than you bargained for, but it, but I, or probably wanted, but it's, um, the process of this book made me feel like I need a new process <laughs> in a way. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, having a fit and getting depressed. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, you know, that's the honest answer, right? Like, I, I wish I could be more high-minded. Also time, right? Like time, you know, I have a fit, I get depressed, I doubt myself, et cetera, et cetera. And then after a while, time sort of sorts it, sorts these things into a certain kind of perspective. And I think, and I think the other thing is, being at what I'm learning more and more is to, is that I'm, I have to be a defender of the thing that I made and that certain sorts of rejections are not an indictment of the thing that I made there. They have to do with other sorts of things. And so if I lose faith in the thing that I made, then who's going to have faith in the thing that I made, you know? Um, and so that, that kind of re calibrating or, 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 or revising my mode of, of, of thinking about what it means to be rejected is, is helpful, but that is certainly not the initial, you know, it takes a minute to get there. The initial response is a hissy fit and depression. (laughs) And what is your favorite word? Oh, murmuration. Thank you so much for your time in this conversation. I'm so grateful and appreciative. It was really great. Thank you for being such an incredibly insight. I mean, obviously, you know this already, but just such an incredibly astute and insightful reader. Thank you. If you like today's show with Ayanna Mathis, author of the novel, The Unsettled, check out my interview with Molly Dektar on her novel, The Ash Family, about a cult in North Carolina. We talked about environmental terrorism, dealing with coincidences and plot, and how far her characters will go to fulfill their personal beliefs. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, Michael Cunningham, and Paul Harding. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.